Welcome to another episode of the Living with Feeling podcast from the Centre for the History of Emotions. My name is Jules Evans and this week, this episode, I interviewed Dr. Guy Hayward. And Guy is a, um, a young man in his uh, early 30s who's doing uh, very interesting things in his life and career. He's someone I, I really admire. So it was a pleasure to talk to him. He uh, started off as a uh, chorister at Cambridge University where he did a PhD in music, um, but he decided not to become a traditional academic and instead he's carved out a role for himself uh, as an um, explorer of the intersection between spirituality, psychology, the arts, uh, nature and religion. And he seems particularly interested in how we can engage with our Christian heritage, um, even if we're not traditional Christians, which I think is a very important question for British culture at the moment. And he's developed um, two initiatives, um, which are uh, which I think a kind of a brilliant example of doing something um, which doesn't take a huge amount of effort but has big impact and results um, so the two things he, he he's launched in the last few years one is something called the british pilgrimage trust which um, works to reopen ancient pilgrimage routes around the uk and to um, let people know about these routes and that they're you know you can they're available and you can and walk them uh, and it's partly about helping people to reconnect to uh, the land and to re-enchant the land. And the second thing he's um, worked on is um, the revival of Evensong in the UK. So he launched a website, uh, www.choralevensong.org, where people can find uh, just local Evensong services near them in Britain, which they can go along to. So what's I think what connects these two things, these two initiatives that he's started, is that with both pilgrimage and evensong, these are Christian practices that you can participate in and get a transcendent experience from or, or a spiritual experience from, even if you don't believe in the specific dogmas of um, traditional Christianity. Um, and I think that's very important for our post-religious sceptical society that, that is still very hungry um, for um, a more spiritual life. Um, we also talked about his experience of academia and what you can and can't say in mainstream academia. And we talked about his um other job uh singing in a, in one half of a kind of cabaret duo so um lovely person fascinating person and i hope you enjoy the conversation you were a, a choir boy and choir a chorister boy. yeah a boy chorister at bath abbey and then i missed it once i lost my you know, the voice changes around 13 and then i became after that a, bar a baritone there and then then loved it so much so I just wanted to carry on so applied to Cambridge because that's where they all had all the best choirs or at least that's what I thought and then um, applied and got into the one I really wanted to and the one I was told I would never get into which is great and, and when you say you applied and got into you got into a choir 
Yes, so I applied to Trinity College, Cambridge, and um, that was the only, it was sort of my, my favourite choir that had girls in it, because all the rest were just boys and men, mm-hmm. but the others were uh, mixed, girls and uh, girls and guys, um, same age, which was much better. And um, yeah, so we, so that happened, and then I, I then wanted to move, I didn't really know where I was going, and but I knew that I'd, I picked up this psychology course in the second year. I tried, I wanted, I started off doing French opera and then heard one, heard one lesson and realised um, this is not for me at all. Because your on, main degree was uh, music. Yeah, and, right. and exactly, my main degree is music. And then I looked, I looked on, the, on the, other, the rest of the list and it said introduction to music and science. And I thought, what's this? So I, I went to one of those at one lecture and I just, Ever since then, it's it was it's really taken me on a path, and um, did a master's in musicology, but really focused on the psychological side. And my thesis was on how, when we walk next to each other, do we walk more in time when we're talking to someone than when we're not? So is that when we converse with someone, does does the rest of us go into sync in order to be close to that person? And, um, and I, it did actually show that it, that we do more so than when we don't talk to someone, but still walking side by side. We use treadmills to do it, um, which is obviously a, a kind of a mad experiment in the way. But and didn't conclusively prove it, but it showed a trend in the direction. So that was great. And then, and I still sort of didn't really know what I wanted to do. So um, uh, I, I, but I, I thought that there's something in the, the psychological trajectory uh, in my understanding of the world and then sing it, bring that into singing because that had always been what I'd done and then this idea of looking at how groups, how choirs sing in time with each other it's a sort of unknown we just don't know how they do it I mean it's surprisingly simple and straightforward thing you know, you'd think but it's one of the most complicated answers because um, there are so many different ways that you can get in time with each other. There's looking at each other, there's sort of feeling the breath of each other, there's um, counting in your head when you think people are going to come in, um, and then there's the body gestures to, to, to show to show when you're going to come in. But I want to see, did, did all these work? Did these work as... Um, as explanations for why for why how we can get into time and and none of them on their own actually seemed to explain it and so i said basically i came up with came up with the idea that um it's either some kind of weird combination of all of them which is very hard to 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 pin down computationally or it's some kind of collective mind that's organizing the group because i did have that sense as a as a choir boy and many times, you know, when there are these big gaps, and there's a very big silence, and you know, just bef- a pause before we c- everyone comes back in, and it's pretty, it's completely chaotic that moment, really. And yet, the, the ability for everyone to come back in is, is extraordinary, and and so it is beyond the ordinary. And uh, then I, I I came across Rupert Sheldrake's work, and his book, The Presence of the Past, had a section on schools of fish and um, flo- uh, flocks of starlings and how they move as one and how 
the science that's been done on that to see you know, what the explanations are. Sim similar kind of thing, they look at where they're looking and they, they, they have the idea that you can see, a bird can see in front of it and, and perhaps behind it and then it, and then if one bird moves, the one next to it moves and then it's a sort of domino effect through the flock or the school of fish. But when you look at it, for, you really go down to the details and you do slow-mo video capture and um, and you, and then you also, yeah, they've done that with, with birds. You you can't explain it like that because they all move at once. It's not, it's, it, there's not that kind of Mexican wave phenomenon that goes through, through it all. So I got really intrigued by this and it seemed to make so much sense that something similar is happening in choirs and all forms of human group movement, I just thought. Mm. Um, but of course I couldn't say that. I couldn't say what I really wanted to say, um, which was that this might have some kind of extended consciousness um, aspect to it. The, I, the, the idea that, that consciousness is extending beyond the confines of the skull of the, either of the bird or fish's head or whatever you know or the or, or the human the human skull you know that our mind can extend and then join with a greater mind that includes the whole group it's a radical idea obviously um, but it seemed to me to make sense so I, I realized I couldn't carry on in this trajectory and you couldn't even and not um, at Cambridge anyway and you couldn't even kind of suggest or mention that idea I mean no I had to I had to dance around it what did you I mean did you have conversations with your supervisor where, where you sort of, you would say yeah I had very frank conversations with him and, and he's and, and he's, what, what he says that this <laughs> well, his, it was uh, absolutely yeah. great his answer and it sort of summarized the the state of science really which was he goes okay fine do your music telepathy experiment see if that works but you'll have to do thousands of trials if you do this experiment which is much simpler and um, less less demanding in terms of intellectually and there's less of a paradigmatic shift you only need to do 20 or 30 trials I just thought how come the, the sort of uh, requirements for evidence are just so different for two, for two different ideas it just seems so unfair because he knew by saying thousands of trials there would be no way I could do that and write a PhD as well mm. And was there a feeling also of reputational risk for you and also for his department? Very much, as a young, as a young researcher, yeah. Mm. I mean, reputational risk to the point of not passing a PhD and also, yeah, tainting the whole department. Yeah, that's basically what he was probably thinking, actually. Mm. Because it was an interesting thesis. It was sort of dealing with a lot of, a lot of the key issues that were going on in, in this particular field at the time. Um, so yes, if I'd been much more upfront about it, it would be much harder to pass. Mm. So in effect, I didn't say the word telepathy once during my PhD. Mm. Did you talk about extended mind or bottom Well, interestingly, the, the one paper that did the, the, the analysed in slow-mo all of the flocks of starlings using very complex computational methods to attach a tracking dot to every single one of 10,000 starlings mm. and then doing algorithms and um, computations to work out does one bird moving does that go through a domino effect or does it just affect the whole flock in one instant and they found that it affected one, the whole flock in one instant and they basically said this 
almost suggests mm. collective mind metaphor, but they only say the word metaphor. And yet, what happens if it's actually real? There's actually a collective mind. And that seemed, that seemed like a bit of a cop-out, but they were probably playing the game too. Do you think there's a big difference between how practitioners of music think about what they do, what music is, what it does and how, and where uh, musical scientists are? Um, yes, I think it, I mean, the kind of conversations I've had is um, the, this, uh, the, the musicians tend to say something like, oh yes, I've noticed that, but that there's no, no more interrogation. So it's not like they're against it as an idea, it just for them it doesn't, it sort of doesn't really matter mm. what, what this actually means. Um, to the fact that it's, it's just, just whether it's what it they works. like. Does, they, it, does it make yeah. the music better? Yeah. yeah, does it make the music better? Do I, do I have that sense of camaraderie with my group? And, and do I, you know, that's what they're doing it for. I mean, really, when you, when you, if, you, if you're a chamber musician, you work in a group, you're doing it for the, to be part of a group. Otherwise, you'd just be a soloist. Or, you know, I, I, it, that's, so that's you could do a kind of from. qualitative study looking at people's subjective reports, but maybe that wouldn't really... What's it like to sing in a choir? What are those moments like? Yeah, I mean, I don't think, uh, because for so long we haven't, we haven't thought in this way, I don't think our um, ability to talk about this issue actually would, would lend to much eloquence on the subject. I don't think yeah. people would be particularly articulate uh, because it's so hard to talk about. Right. And most people haven't ever thought about it. So uh, the PhD, you, I guess in some ways then you found it, uh, some aspects of it unsatisfying in that you couldn't really talk about what you wanted to talk about. Yeah. And did that make you think, okay, maybe I, I how did that make you feel about academia once you'd finished and defended your thesis? Did, did you then think, shall I stay? Shall I um, do something else? Well, I think um, professional academia, where you're trying to create form a career, um, I think it very much showed showed me that actually you can't really change anything doing that because you're you're funded by someone higher up than you who's got there and and has uh, through lots of hard work and existing with probably within a single paradigm and they have a reputational reputation they're trying to uphold and that you are serving them. And that means that um, un until you get to their position, by which time you'll have the same problem, you'll have a reputation you have to defend and, and all that, um, you can't really do anything that of your own, of your own of your, really of your own ideas, especially if it's paradigm shifting. If it's, mm. if it's your own thing, but roughly within the same paradigm and way of thinking they have, they're quite happy for you to do work on it. But as soon as it's against grain it becomes impossible to really earn earn a career earn a, a proper income because you're seen as a risk mm. so what um did you decide to do instead well take take a break and it was a really scary time which actually. was uh 2014 2014 15 yes um and i'd met i'd met will um parsons um, the pilgrimage work with a year before um, and basically the, the, after my PhD finished I thought um, 
I'd love to get away from the laptop, you know, this 13-inch sort of sphere of vision that you're channeled into for, for years, rather than the sort of vast expanse of the open wilderness and looking, in, your mind expands to the, what you look at. So um, I thought I'd love to go out for a walk and got in touch with him. And he was actually sort of quite a well-known, in that field, walker, because he, I'd seen him on BBC five years before I'd met him. And I, I remember seeing these two guys walking through the field singing folk songs and thinking, this is an extraordinary way of life. Like, this is great. And then I met them, both by chance. And um, I thought, well, I'll see if, he, see if he's up for going for a walk. So, we, so I said, he said yes, because his partner, Ed, had stopped walking with, with him at that time. And then he said... Um, why don't we take a song back to where it came from? I thought, great, this sounds absolutely great. So um, it's that song, and he had a particular one in mind called The Heartlake Bridge Tragedy. This was about 40 hot pickers that had fallen off um, a bridge because it was rotten, um, and they were after a hard day's work on in the hot fields. And they they all died, 40 of them. And... And then they were buried in this in the parish church, um, the graveyard nearby in Hadlow. But um, there had been an in, in inquisition into what had gone wrong and, and the big and um, powerful corporation at the time that was in charge of the, the rivers and, and all the bridges and looking after everything claimed no responsibility and yet they were the ones that were profiting off this cheap labour. A familiar story. Um, and... So there was a song written in a kind of protest. If you hear every single line, is a, has a double meaning and it sounds very nice, the song. And but each line basically means, you fuckers, basically. Mm. Um, and so we walked it all the way, singing it to everyone we met. But when we arrived, it was seventy miles along the River Medway from Will's home in Kent. And when we arrived at the, uh, the churchyard where the monument to the uh, forty hot pickers was um there was a couple in front of of it just looking and it seemed really strange because there was this whole churchyard no one else just this this couple standing in front of the monument and it was a tiny little thing really um and i i said what's going you know why are you here what are you doing and they said we tried to come here 10 years ago but couldn't find it anyway we're here now we're just about to leave and i said why did you come and they said well we're three of my ancestors died in the tragedy. Just couldn't believe it. And then he said, have you heard the song? And they said, no. So we got to like return the song, this 150-year-old mm. song, to the bloodline, not just the place, which was mm. the initial idea. And I think it was that moment for both of us where we realised that having a, a destination-focused journey and with a strong intention that kind of has meaning is a complete different kind of journeying to what Will had been doing, which was basically, he called wandering minstrelsy, or wandering minstrelsy, basically just wandering without any particular goal, just the life itself, loving the, the lifestyle and the process of being a wandering minstrel. You know, if you get invited into a pub for a week, you spend a week at a pub and you sing songs to all the people, that, but it's no, there's no sense of, I've got to get here. And Will had just got a child and, and had a child with and uh, his, his partner at the time. And um, 
basically he realised that he needed a more compact version of what he was doing before to fit in with the new the, the change in his life and that he, we, we both thought this is basically pilgrimage we'd been going into churches um, which he hadn't done with Ed very much in the same way um, and we thought why, why is no one doing this this is quite a great way to live and lots of amazing synchronicities happened he said that more happened in that week in terms of concentration per day of ex extraordinary synchronicities that than when he was walking as a wandering minstrel so he thought that had something to do with this um, intention and destination focused journey and we kind of know that that works because if we have a, a clear goal in our own lives, we're more like it's more likely to happen, and thing life organises itself around that goal more than if we don't don't have an idea of what we want to do. Mm. It's a difficult one, but yeah, mm. I think there's something in it. So that kind of basic idea led to us thinking, well, where's this all going? Um, this this hiking um, movement, with so many people are doing it nowadays. They're going out to walk in the countryside. But I think it's one of the a growth industry really in, in Britain because we have this amazing public footpath network and obviously amazing holy places and such a variety of them and, and green and pleasant land and we've got, we've got a lot of factors going for Britain and yet the hiking movement doesn't seem to be inspiring in the way that pilgrimage is to a lot I, I, that's just a bias obviously because some people want to have it, everything completely stripped away and just be allowed to walk and it'd be nothing to do with holy places or religion or not, not, not what we do is but I think there's a lot of baggage this word has and it's maybe a bit silly to choose to take the word but it also is a powerful word mm. and basically we're trying to reclaim it and give it a new a new meaning. And were you also partly inspired by the success of the Camino de Santiago in Spain? Yeah, it was a kind of um, proof of principle, really, that mm -hmm. it, if it works in Spain, then it could work here. Um, there are much, much bigger pilgrimages out there. I mean, the Santiago de Compostela is minute compared to most of the big world ones. There's one in uh, uh, Iraq... That's that's twenty million people, and they do it, and they do it over a, a two-week period, walking thirty miles a day in the heat, and cooking sort of seven hundred and fifty. I don't, I don't know how many. Either, either that no million or something absolutely absurd amount of meals, and and it's just a colossal um, venture, and this happens every year. And then there's the Kumela, hundred and ten million or something. Um, so. 250,000 in Europe is, is small, small fish. Fry, yeah. Do you think uh, Britain needs a, um, a kind of main pilgrimage route? I think that's how we like to work. I think people want to know where to go. I think they want to know that... and they, We do need one to begin with. I think we need to prove, to prove it as a principle that it works and that it's be a flagship route. And Canterbury is an obvious destination because that was the main one for most of the medieval um, period. Uh, but ecologically, we want many routes because it's chalk along the South Downs from Southampton to Canterbury, which is mm. the route we've chosen called the Old Way to Canterbury. 
um, and chalk ruts, and we could destroy, erode the landscape quite a lot if that many people walked it. So to spread the load, it would be good to have more pilgrimage routes. St Cuthbert's Way and... Yeah, and there are lots of them already in existence. There are about 40 or 50 of varying lengths and distances. But um, they don't have accommodation built in, and that's the key thing. If you want to do a pilgrimage, you, most people want to know they can put their head down somewhere. So how does the... Um the organisation you set up, which is called the British Pilgrimage Society, Trust, British, British Pilgrimage Trust. Trust, yeah, is that something um, that you've been looking at, like where to stay and uh, trying to encourage places to have cheap pilgrim accommodation? Yes. Yeah, so, one one of our early pilgrimages after the one I just told told you about the the, the Heart Lake Bridge one was about five months later. We walked from Winchester to Canterbury along the South Downs, and. We decided to do it without, without any money. It was Will's idea. and I, I How long was that walk? Three and a half weeks. Right. So it's kind of mad in a way in Britain. You thought, is that even possible? Are people generous enough? Um, and then there are the ethical issues of, if you can afford it, why are you getting other people to pay for you to do it? You know, all these kinds of questions. Mm. Um, but we did it, and one of the ways we did it, because it was winter and it was quite stormy, um, was we we met Peter Owen Jones at Furl, who was along the way, and he said, oh, why don't you sleep in the church? And he, he got the big key and opened it up, and I said, sheepishly, can I sleep by the altar? And he goes, yeah, of course, sleep anywhere you like, kind of thing. So I did, and... And then it was, ama- it was an amazing experience when the, to wake up with the light streaming through the stained glass windows and in this very peaceful space where people have prayed for thousands, of, you know, for a thousand years at least. Um, so I, the next, when we came to the next village at the end of the next day, we, we called up the, the vicar and, and the, the church wardens and said, can we come stay? And he said yes. And then a sort of snowball effect and they all started saying yes and so we started sleeping in all these churches along the way and we realised this is amazing mm. they're not being used at night they're also not being used in general and maybe on the Sunday morning if they're lucky to have a decent congregation so we need to give them a new use all these churches that may not have had a use and also to, to make them seem genuinely fun I mean, it's, it's a sort of fun way of engaging with the church to go to sleep in it. And it's, it's dark, so you can't see anything. And which means you, you sort of let go into the, into the place more, because at night time it's more about the place than it is about what you can see. Um, so it, we thought, if we could get a low-cost um, agreement going with these churches that for five, ten pounds a night, pilgrims could sleep there, as long as they brought their own sleeping kit... It could, it could actually revolutionise rural England. I just thought getting pilgrims moving through it. Mm. So that was the that was one of the main things that needs to be sorted out. And the other thing is just the um, the, sh- the sort of uh, wariness of people to get involved with something called pilgrimage, like because they just think that's religious. Most most people's first question is, oh, is that a religious thing? And we basically say, well. It's as religious as you want it to be. It's, it's not not religious, but it's not religious. And 
we so so the other part of our work that we see as our major contribution that we're going to try and achieve is uh, to to remove the the need for religious um, layering on top of the, the actual baseline activity of pilgrimage. The baseline is just walking between holy places, but what intellectual belief frameworks you put on top of that is up to you and that's the key point it's not to say you can't think this or you can think this or but just say that's not the point it's the, the structure of the activity that's the most important thing doing it do you think um christianity in britain has got hung up on uh beliefs versus practices yes i think that can in terms of the religious sphere, that probably came from the Reformation with this idea to translate the Bible into a language that everyone could understand. Um, and therefore, the engagement with religion became more about the word and the book. Henry VIII banned pilgrimage. Um, probably, this is a bit of a conjecture, but to stop peasants from just downing their tools and going on pilgrimage because that was a legitimate form of holidaying or holy daying um, and basically they they would have not spent enough as much time on the land doing the work whereas if you make pilgrimage a journey of the mind a more metaphorical journey studying the bible and going on that journey um, you can keep them at home so there's always been a bit of a subversive act um, so I think we need to, we have to move towards a stage, especially with the pluralism we see in religious belief and spirituality of all, basically anything is available to anyone now if, with the internet. If you want to study a bit of arcane, esoteric Tibetan Buddhism, you can, you just type it in and you find, whereas in medieval times that wasn't an option, you just had the, the vicar or the priest or the, the monk telling you what to believe and that's, that was it that's all you got especially when it was in Latin as well so we're in a completely different mm. stage now um, so we think the bring your own beliefs BYOB is the right way forward because if a church is like could put a, a fair trade label or the equivalent saying we are open to all we welcome people of all beliefs or none if they make that point on their churches I think it would start to remove this sense of that's not my place I don't belong there because I don't believe in this I think we also, there was a huge shift towards knowledge, the age of knowledge I think after the enlightenment and understanding the world in an abstract way which has allowed all this amazing advancement of technology and medicine and our ability to build these huge, these, these huge cities mm -hmm. I mean that requires an abstraction of thought and so beliefs must have become quite important, I would have thought. Um, mm. But practices take time. And I think, that, I think that might be one of the reasons why people don't do them as much, because as, as life is sped up because of all this, uh, the, the move towards abstraction is allowed a sort of speeding up of life in a particular direction that we're all, we're all so familiar with, with emails and mobile phones. And we, know, we know that, everyone talks about it. Um, so taking time out from that is harder, and I think. But practices, 
I think it's the difference between experienced knowledge and and learn intellectually acquired knowledge. It's and very, it's, very it's different. And embodied as well. Yeah. I mean, people aren't going to be converted to religion if they don't believe in it by intellectual arguments. I just don't, you know, ever done it for anyone. I think it's always about some kind of experience that someone has that changes the way they look at the world and then they look into analysing that experience and breaking it down and then doing the intellectual thing. But the experience is always primary, I think. I, mm. That's the problem, I think, is that we've, atheists are trying to convince religious people to not be religious through intellectual arguments. And, and then religious people sometimes take on atheists with, with intellectual arguments, and they're just, they're just at loggerheads, because there's going to be no movement there, I don't think, mm. until experience becomes the primary way of doing it. I think. And is that part of your thinking about the work you're also doing in the revival of Evensong? Um, and, and could, you, could you tell me a bit about that work as well? Yeah, so um, there are lots of churches in Britain. <laughs> I mean, I don't know how many there are, but probably 10,000, 15,000 or something. I just hard to know. A lot of them do um, have choral singing going on in them and on a Sunday or some to some of them during the week. Um, and during the Reformation, one of the sort of good things that came out of it was a lot of destruction, but there was actually quite a bit of creation too. And one of the good things was this service called Choral Evensong, which basically was um, a condensation of Vespers and Compline, which are these two evening services in the monastic order of services during, during, throughout the day. And it's much shortened form of those two, 45 minutes, and with mainly music, and not much liturgy, and not, not many places in which you have to um, proclaim your beliefs in any way, you, and maybe have to say a couple of amens. But most of it's about sitting back and letting this glorious music of 500 years of our greatest composers having a go at the, the Corleone song canon. So is it a uniquely British thing, even so? Yeah, it was Archbishop Cranmer um, in 1549, during the English Reformation, who, who wrote the Book of Common Prayer, which is an English-language book, and um, it started here. I think it started in London. I'm not sure exactly where the first service happened. That we don't know, I don't think, because it sort of is a bit of a organic process. Um, but then Queen Elizabeth I, after Henry VIII, really made the music side of it come to life. And then ever since then, with each generation, the greatest composers of the time have added their, their contributions to the canon of, of even song. So it's just amazing music. And it's this, and it happens in these churches Every day or every Sunday? Um, every day in cathedrals. Most most cathedrals do it every day. Um, every Sunday for parish churches. Some do during the week, very few. Um, and it's free. And it's free and people don't really know about it. People don't really... Well, yeah, they, they don't. And probably for the same reason, they just, they just think that's too religious for me. I'm not religious, therefore I... 
also, I don't. I think the Church of England doesn't come to a lot of people doesn't come across as um, the sort of thing where it's it's relevant for them. They, they don't really know what it, it's 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 now so far down the list of priorities in most people's lives. They just don't know anything about it, so they don't even know what it's got to offer. And the marketing departments don't want to promote Core Leader Song because it's free, and they want people to pay in the cathedrals. They want to pay, make them come in for admission with admissions charges. And so, even the church is taking its, its sort of strongest work to like damp down the, the promotion of this thing that actually I think could get people in through the side door rather than straight through the front door. This come and hear the beautiful music, you don't have to believe anything, is much more effective than saying, come to Holy Communion and celebrate the, the Mass of our dear Lord Jesus Christ. I mean, those two different approaches are complete. They're just like a world apart. Do you think um, the Church of England is quite uh, kind of evangelical now and it wants to go in strong on that meet Jesus, Jesus saved you, uh, the encounter yeah. with Jesus and the conversion is everything. Well, they can, they can go either one of two ways. They either make their identity even stronger and even more forthright, or they allow the kind of breakdown and collapse of their identity and to build up something new later on. But to go through that process, I think, is quite scary. So I think they're trying to hold on to the identity they know and make that stronger and come across more fervently. But actually, what they might need to do is allow a kind of breakdown moment where it's not clear what the church is, where it's not clear what people believe. And, and if they feel it's being dumbed down or whatever, they might have to just go through that pain, painful barrier, maybe come out the other side and find out that they haven't lost anything and they've still got the same identity, it's just more inclusive. Mm. I, I, yeah. It's hard to know. I, some part of the church, and this is, some of the, the fastest growing parts of the church is, are doing what you're saying about the evangelical with the evangelical approach, but it's, the numbers aren't that big. It's only 12,000, I think, in, 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 in the, that um, Holy Trinity Brompton Alpha Course movement. It's not in London. I don't think it's not massive numbers. Um, the... Evensong is becoming more popular, isn't it? Uh, I, oh, I don't know if, if you're just uh, very good at publicity. Um, <laughs> I, I've seen quite a few things um, asking yeah. about this. My, my father said he heard something on the radio about even When I said I was going to interview you, he said he'd heard something about Evensong. So it, from what I read, it seems like more people are coming into cathedrals to hear Evensong. Yes. So the church is becoming sure. aware that it's onto something. Yeah, I think um, I, I think that our press channels are becoming aware that this is a story worth telling. It's a, it's a positive story where most people, where, where everyone's a winner, kind of thing. Um, the people who who want to go get to hear something they didn't know existed and enjoy it, um, and not have to pay for it, and the churches who are desperate to get people in. Are getting people in in a different way, so I feel it has. It's a sort of, it's a 
publicity's um, sort of it's a, it's a sort of movement that's got it having its time. Um, pretty hard to know uh, exactly how much more popular it's becoming, but we do know that our, over the last ten years, midweek services have been attended. Uh, the, the attendance figures are up by sixty percent, um, and even. Richard Dawkins says he has a certain love for Evensong. So this is nothing in its way. If Richard Dawkins says it's all right, then it's like they're walking all the back in terms of people coming. So I think it, 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 is, it is becoming more popular. As with anything, there's an element of what you say is happening becomes reality. Mm. So the more positive you can be about it, the more it'll become true, I think. And so you set up a website where people can find out about local Evensong services? Yeah, um, um, it's called callevensong.org and you type in your postcode, um, either where you live or where you're planning to visit, um, and you'll find the nearest Coral Evensong to you and it'll tell you the time that'll happen, the music that you'll hear, and the kind of choir that, that'll be singing, the history of the building, some contact details if you want to call ahead and find out more. So um, all the kind of basic information, which until recently, until this website really was scattered everywhere and quite hard to find and you had to click, you have to really know what you're looking for on a cathedral website to actually find the bit mm -hmm. about Call Evensong, because they do bury it a bit, mm -hmm. sort of six clicks away. And for people who weren't either technologically that au fait with, with how the internet works or with um, with actually the Church of England, how it operates and how how church websites work, so we just tried to create a, a universal format, which is the same for every church, and that's that makes it easier. See, so, um, you said um, it's a way to get people in through the side door, yeah, into the church or or kind of uh, religious practices. Yeah. Do you have a um, a kind of uh, goal in these activities is your goal um, to reconnect people with Christian heritage or how, how do you think of it maybe these are just different projects and you don't have no there is there is, there is a kind of um, a kind of coherent underlying um, goal there is there is um, but it's it's not very it's it, it's not that well formed in my own mind what it is I can feel it um, I suppose I, everything's become more and more separated in as we inter, as we analyze everything and we we name everything um, and People society is fragmenting lots of ways, and people's beliefs are fragmenting in lots of different ways. So, I suppose I want I want to try and bring people back to that sense of being part of something bigger than themselves. Um, that can be very comforting, especially if you feel isolated and lonely in a world where which is fragmenting, and and that's a wonderful thing that it's fragmenting because it's becoming more complex and there's more there's more on offer. More diversity, but it is—it's it's frightening if you feel that 
you're on your own and you're you're not looked after by something bigger than yourself if it's all down to you that can be a very um, scary place and I feel that if there, there are all these ways into having that feeling of being part of something bigger than yourself and allowing, to, to allowing yourself to rest within it whatever you want to call that feeling and I just want to basically just promote experiences that can actually achieve that and I'm having spent so much time on my PhD and realizing how intellectualization is can really stop it can really halt that process and really actually get in the way of that and and oh, so a feeling of belonging spiritual health yeah is that what you felt with doing your PhD that yeah I, one of the things I look at is flourishing in higher education including for PhDs as well I mean, did you find it was quite a yeah lonely experience lonely and also um, very um, an analytical in the sense of uh, lots and lots and lots of detailed or a detailed way of thinking um, compartmentalising bits of knowledge and um, in order to make it distinct and saying this is as opposed to that and there's very very little of this kind of bigger picture everything making sense kind of feeling that happens I don't know if oh, yeah. it makes yeah, sense yeah, that, that where, where everything comes together and you have a sort of more of a a global understanding of what you're studying it's, it so encourages more of a, a pernickety detail kind of way and, and and I suppose in my own life I want you have to do detail I and mean, it's essential otherwise you can't affect any change in the world but whatever change you want to affect in the world but unless you have that ability to sort of see the all and be part of the all and feel like a part of the all this, you're missing a part of you, I, th I feel. Mm. You're, you're getting cut off from the part of you, yeah. who you are. And what's your uh, relationship to the church? Well, I'm confirmed Christian. I got confirmed when I was 28, or I think, yeah, 28. Uh, but How old are you now? I'm 31. But I'm not that... I don't go to church, you know, regularly. Yes, and I'm not a church... I wouldn't say I'm a church-goer. Mm. Um, I sometimes go to church. I find it very frustrating. I, I mean, I, I don't even go to Coral Evensong that much. I, 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 in a way, I feel it's, um, it's not for me. It's, I want other people to because I, I gave me so much. It, being made, in a choir. Being in a choir. Being, you know, the whole tradition made yeah. me a musician. It made me a singer. Um, and I know how beautiful the music is and I know how much it means to people to go. And I, in a way, it's a, some way of me giving something back for everything I've received. Mm. Um, I mean, not obviously everyone, loads of people have received it and not everyone has to repay that. In, mm. But someone had to, I think, I feel because it is such an important... So many of our great musicians have come from the, come from the tradition. Because at six years old, if you're learning how to sing and make, pi make pictures in your own mind without needing to play it on a piano, and you're becoming musical, basically. 
So you were confirmed late. I mean, did you grow up as a Christian? I was brought up as a Christian scientist by two Christian scientists, my mum and dad, and um, they. That's a that's a religion which is mainly about healing yourself through getting in connection with God, um, and it's known for its more sort of negative PR, which is that people don't bother going to the doctor and then they don't get diagnosed and then they die sometimes. But in its more positive form, it is actually a, a radical reinterpretation of what health means. And that it's not that they don't ever go to have medical advice or whatever, but it's, that's just not where they start. They, they start by trying to sort of get a bigger picture perspective on life. And I suppose that's still with me, really. I, I tried to reject it when I was 12 to about 23, and I was an atheist for that whole period. From 12 to 23? Yeah. I think that that's sort of those sort of ages. And mm. started to believe in the cause of science and say to my parents, you know, you're, you're so stupid, why do you believe all this stuff? And, you know, it was horrendous, really. It's like mm. mini Dawkins. Um, but it just didn't stack up. It didn't that, that way of being didn't help me in the long run. It, it got me into issues. So I basically returned. But not exactly to Christian science. It's not really where I don't study it now or to kind much of to do it. But it's more about how I was brought up. That ability to feel like you're part of something greater than you and, and to, to, to know that's very important. And are you kind of, you know, really kind of drawn to the numinous in Anglicanism or... Uh, yeah, I mean, yeah. Uh, are you a kind of Trinitarian Christian or m more kind of apophatic? There's a God, but it's somewhat beyond our understanding. But we can approach him, her, it through the experiential. No, I I, I feel that in a way that I am an expression of God, um, and everything is God, has God within it, and God is within everything. Um, and nature is in God, God is in nature. There's sort of no separation, that everything is God. Right. That's all right. Okay. <laughs> it's good enough for me. <laughs> Do you think that the kind of the, the, the scientist atheist phase, or the, the kind of militant atheist phase, uh, uh, that your interest in like the psychology of music and. Yeah. The, um, I, I'd like to ask you also about the survey you just did. Oh, yeah. About. Um, scientists' religious beliefs, Yeah. Um, that you're kind of uh, seeking to harmonise these different aspects of you, the, 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 the analytical, scientific, and the more kind of numinous. Yeah, it's, hu it's hugely important because if you go into just the numinous, you, we all know where that ends up, we, you know, hippies gazing at the sky and like lying in the grass and not doing anything. You know that's what happens. You can't if you if that's if that's where if that's where you want where you're going. We all if that's all you want. So we have to sort of be in the world as well. And I think there's a duty to go outwards as well to help. Maybe this is not actually true, and it, uh, this is just how I've interpreted the world. But this that once you've got something that's working for you, if you can help others find that for themselves and yes and I think the the way to do that is through the language of science that's what people listen to mm. 
It ha it it's got it's got a sort of authority for a reason. It was a rea when it was when the scientific movement was created by Francis Bacon and the the Royal Society. They were doing it because they needed a new way of finding out knowledge, because the old religious ways were at war with each other and it was all sorts of problems were happening and and. So by finding the scientific method, which is more neutral uh, process of gaining knowledge, it allowed you to to say, well, we don't know for sure, but here's some evidence, and we've done this experiment that can be analysed and attacked and questioned. So it's a sort of more robust way. It's a very slow way of getting to know things, but it's the language of the of what people read in these papers, what they accept. So if you can use it mm. in to actually get people round to the old way of thinking but through science and yeah. then you're that's, that's, that seems to me like legitimate sure do you do you work with the scientific and medical network yes well i i'm funded by the salvia foundation which is approached rupert sheldrake to ask him if he wanted um any funding for anything and basically he said Initially he said no, but then he said yes, and then he said he thought because well, I, I needed he knew that I needed work, and we got on and we'd done work together for quite a long time. So, but not unpaid. I was just doing it because I just thought what he did was great. Um, things like dealing with the TED scandal and the Wikipedia problem and fighting his corner with that and and working on his experiments and things. So, he said, "Do you want?" Look, if they could give, me, give you a salary, would you say yes? I said, yeah, of course, amazing. Um, so ever since then, I've been working with him, and the, the, the money goes through the scientific and medical network. And who are the Salvia Foundation? They are a, they are a Genevan registered charity which is dedicated to increasing, through education, spiritual and ecological awareness in the world. It's quite, it's quite broad, but um, they 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 are connected to the Sol the Solvay company, which is a huge chemical company in Brussels that funded the quantum physics conferences in nineteen twenties with Einstein and Planck and stuff. So right. they've got pedigree, and uh, they're still that's where the money comes from. Is this chemical company? Okay. So it's an interesting turn. Yeah. Of the sort of using making money and then yeah the world works like that right um and so you did a survey for uh which uh recently through that um yes so the scientific and medical network of the british um british based basically it's a journal that it's a they create a review the scientific and medical network review which looks at how we can use science to interrogate these these spiritual questions um, and sometimes psychic questions and questions through the afterlife and um, near death experiences and twin telepathy and Rupert's work and um, ghosts and I mean all sorts. It's sort of the science that can be done on that, and it's got this wonderfully innocuous name, scientific and medical network. Doesn't mention spirituality at all. No. Yeah. Which is good. Um, so that's the, they 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 were the ones that commissioned the the report and Salvia paid for it and David Lorimer who's the director of the, the, the network he 
he drew up the, the survey with Rupert and a bit of my help too. And then we, then we ran it across um, thousands of professional scientists, um, medical professionals and engineers in, in UK, France and Germany. So 3,000 in total responded, 1,000 from each of UK, France and Germany. And the results were extraordinary. Um, one of the questions was asked, was asked was um, are you practicing religious, non-practicing religious, spiritual but not religious, agnostic or atheist and if you count spiritual but not religious as basically believing as it were um, then atheists and agnostics are actually in the minority they're only 45%, whereas the other one, uh, taking spiritual or religious, non-practicing religious and practicing religious altogether, they, they, they outnumbered the, the atheists and agnostics, which is, I mean, extraordinary, really, if you think for, for so Sounds many decades... Sounds what people would believe, the yeah, public perception. Been, Dawkins, for, for decades, has been saying the scientific community does not believe in God or does not believe in this hocus pocus stuff, you know, spirituality, and he's wrong, basically, <laughs> and, um, that, and that it's possible, it seems possible for scientists to have beliefs and still be scientists, and not combust, into, you know, internally combust with the sort of pressure of the conflicting mm. worldviews. What do you think is, uh, I, and I, I don't expect you to have a clear definitive answer but when you reflect on the future um, for this country in terms of uh, our spiritual life how do you see it developing I think the, the most important word will be tolerance I think I think we're going to have to be more tolerant of, of more and more very different belief systems and because there'll be more and more different belief systems available to everyone, what will have to rise in importance is shared experience, so experiences that can be shared amongst people that don't require the conversation about belief, mm. but are still giving you that access to the numinous. So I feel... I think people will change. I think what's been happening is lots and lots of experiments down the sort of, um, I don't know how to describe it really, the sort of left brain path, I like um, seeing the world as a, a set of resources, that the earth, the set of resources can be, that can be used for this end that's basically human-centric. I think we'll become less human-centric. I, I feel we'll start to see the whole People, there'll be more of a, a focus on systemic thinking of how things connect together all these lots and lots of different practices that have been in silos separated from each other I think there's going to be more and more of that of thinking which is how do we bring this all together to work in harmony Do you think um, the church needs to be less of a silo too and more comfortable with blurred boundaries Yeah, the boundaries are blurred whether or not they like it just because there's so much information out there that they're going to have to redefine themselves. 
and, and, and allow for, and just have more confidence in what they have to offer. I really feel that if you really believe in the power of prayer in a place, which is what a church is effectively, is a, church, is a place where prayer and worship and contemplation has been happening for hundreds of years, if, if that actually has a, a reality to it, then people, you should just be totally confident as a church that people can just come in and they will be affected by it. You don't, they don't have to believe anything. The, the place will do the talking, will do the work. And I just think they should just be more confident, unless, because um, at the moment it seems panicky, it seems a bit desperate. You know, this evangelical approach, it's, it's, it's because there's, there's a lack, there's a, they're, they're so worried about losing their identity that they're going even stronger on the identity thing. If they just allow, just loosen up mm. and be like, you're welcome, we've got this great thing, it's here for you to, to enjoy and we're not going to tell you what to think or force you how to be. Mm. That could really change things. Mm. Do you think that involves a reconceptualization of Jesus? What do you mean? Well, I, when I, as a someone from the spiritual but not religious background, was uh, exploring the church and joined like HCB, did the Alpha course and so forth. Yeah. The bit I um, struggled with. Really, was the identity of Jesus, whether Jesus was, if Jesus is God, then it can't just be one bit of a kind of pluralist landscape. Really, it's it's like see, the yes. truth for everyone. Oh no, that's the it's a nightmare the way they think we have the truth. I mean, that's it's so it's so bonkers. I Jesus just um, for me, and I, I may seem incredibly simplistic for saying this but it just seems to be a cosmic archetype for perfection and that doesn't mean that he as a human was perfect I think we're, we're talking of different things I think the cosmic Christ I think is something totally different to the person Jesus was I mean I think Jesus probably was in a, a deeply sexual relationship with Mary Magdalene he was a fully embodied, charismatic, sexual young man who was like a rock star, who had amazing powers of persuasion, could move men and women through his power of person, personality to, to do things they otherwise wouldn't do. And he was, the, he was just a guy. I mean, that's for me what he was. Mm. And he was just a guy that had a particularly powerful message, was prepared to go to particularly extreme ends to achieve it and ensure it, it, that immortality of the message by, by dying. I mean, there are, but there are loads of people today who die for their beliefs and who are probably almost as, if not, well, I'm not saying more impressive than Jesus, but like, you know, that have done extraordinary things. Mm. And I so I, I just feel, I, just, yeah, I, I feel mean, the church has to just let go of, of, of this truth thing. I think the truth thing is killing it because it can't stand up to it. And it, it as soon as you point out one contradiction, you say, well, it doesn't work there. Mm. It, it, it seems a bit silly. Mm. Um, to shift slightly. Sorry if that wasn't the, the greatest answer to that question. Yes, I agree. I think um, they should just relax on the Jesus, the Jesus message. I suppose, and I suppose they, they feel language. like, you know, that 
the point is that I suppose they see Jesus' death and resurrection as transformative for humans, whilst I think that humans believed in resurrection and a blissful afterlife before Jesus. So I think Jesus may have been opening that vision to, a, to the world. Yeah. We die, it's okay, something good happens afterwards. Yeah. But I don't think his death made that happen. I think that was just our nature as humans. No, he did combine it with the love your enemies message. Yeah, and I think that was the key stuff. thing. It's the true. new stuff. Yeah. So, but there have been people who have sacrificed themselves for, for a cause all yeah. throughout history, before Jesus and after Jesus. Yeah. Always, always will. And what they are known for is not sacrifice, but what their message was. Yeah. And I think was, he just had a kind of radical new message yeah. of love your enemies. Yeah. I think. Um, you're, you seem quite successful at um, getting stories about, positive stories about Christianity into the media. This is a rare thing <laughs> in Britain. Yeah. What, do, what have you found your... I mean, because I, I work in the media as well, and I know that things about the science of spirituality are quite likely to get into the mainstream media, because they go, oh, this, that's interesting, that's kind of evidence of things. Yeah. Uh, also, there's a lot of interest in things like... unusual things like maybe Greek philosophy or, or mindfulness. Um, things also where you, you can leave metaphysical beliefs out of it. People, you know, that feel more comfortable with that, yes, the idea of practices. Yes, yes. Um, um, well, how have you found, you know, your engagement with the media and how to get your kind of messages across? Um, well, to treat them all the same, so to make, so to make no, to, to not really talk differently to a religious news outlet than to a mainstream national newspaper. The message is the same, is to not adapt, to come up with a message that can go into every single one of those outlets, to make sure that that's the key thing, mm. not to chop, chop and change depending on who you're talking to. That's mm. the key thing, I think, because then it, then it looks like, and then, you then it the looks media, like you know what you're doing, basically. Do, do you think the media, um, is is uh, is uh, open to stories about spirituality? I think they have to be because the, there's obviously a move towards the spiritual but no religious camp. I think demographics and the census and the, the, the 2011 census and I think 2015 or 16 census basically show that that's risen. Um, and that people who are self-proclaimed atheists, it's not, it's not that many people. So I, I think they realise they have to take it seriously. I think there are cracks showing in science. I think there are, like, where the conscious, the way that um, attitudes towards consciousness have shifted, um, that it's now being seen as in everything. Even the most atheist materialist philosophers in America are now starting to say that the world is panpsychic believe in panpsychism effectively mm -hmm. which means that there's consciousness in a, in a, in a proton or a quark mm. in the same way that there's consciousness in you or I so there are just there are changes going on that are kind of tectonic really mm. and the rise of yoga and the rise of mindfulness and, and the need for it because we've gone so far in the other direction I just think all these factors are playing into this, this sort of 
hunger being sated, but it's being sated in a way that bypasses um, all the bar the mental barriers that have been put up quite strongly against against it. Right. You just have to find ways around it. Mm. So you're helping to revive pilgrimage, helping to revive even song. You just mentioned mindfulness and yoga. Do you think there's a space for the revival of Christian contemplation as well? It'd be great. It'd be really great if, if they could if they could claim that ground. Yeah, I I, did, I really think that'd be great. I, um, in terms of, I think lunch breaks. You know, not just going to Pret or something, but going into a church and spending ten minutes being peaceful in a, in, a, in, if in London, for example, when they've got thick stone walls. It's more. It's, it's silent, and there's not much going on. And I think that that could be really popular. Mm. I, if if that was that might be another another story I try and get out. Right. I just, but that wouldn't be sort of Christian contemplation, like you have to do it thinking about Jesus and stuff. It would be. Initially, it would just be sort of contemplation in Christian spaces. It wouldn't necessarily be, yeah. be specifically Christian like contemplation. Poetry. Tizzy singing, yeah. uh, contemplation of art. Yeah, I think little, that. Little pilgrimages to like museums and galleries as well. Yeah, I think basically being, bringing play back into everything is just going to be so important. You know, the idea that you can have pilgrimages that, in its ideal, is to holy places that are like churches, holy wells, river sources, hilltops, prehistoric burial mounds ancient trees you know all those kinds of holy places or just making up your own kind of holy place and playing yeah. with the form if it seems like a form that's stuck and then you're just back into the institutional yeah. territory that people are trying to escape from Mark Vernon and I um, did a pilgrimage around London of William Blake sites oh yeah did with you the, with, with, um, oh Henry Elliot yeah who's yeah. yeah. kind of the guy from the William Blake site that was great yeah he'd be great I think he's done one to Canterbury as well. Yes, he did. De a declaiming the Canterbury Tales. Yeah, he's 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 got. Uh, Henry, I think, is more of a. I think he's more of a sort of atheist. I think he's. That's not. I think that's where he's coming from. I mm. think, if I'm not. Yeah, right. literary humanist. Isn't literary he? humanist. There we yeah. go. That's. There we go. That's a nice phrase. Yeah. Um, so I think he's very sensitive to how to, still awaken that imagination in people. Mm. Come up with mythic narratives and then and at them in the in by walking around I think there's a lot of there's a lot of scope for this there's, yeah it can be I'm Will and I are putting our ideal into the world but we don't we don't want that to become the only offering mm. so the one well you've probably got several other strings to your bow, bow that I don't know about but the one that I am aware of that I haven't asked you about yet is your um, cabaret singing oh yeah um, so you're in a duo yeah. called um, Bounder Bound and Cad, Cad. Yeah. Um, and you you also you write bespoke songs. People can yeah. buy you to write yeah. songs, yeah. and then you also write kind of uh, satirical pieces looking at different aspects of society. Yeah, they're beautifully sung by 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 uh, you and your partner in the duo. He's Adam, yeah. Um, and how does um, that fit in? to your spiritual life? This is a, it's a question I also myself quite, quite a lot because in a way it seems like the unholy side. Like I'm doing all this earnest, worthy stuff, you know, pilgrimage, 
beliefs on science and spirituality. It's all quite sort of hefty in a way. It's quite fun as well. But um, I, the, the cabaret, are, thankfully, I mean, Adam's the writer. He's the sort of you know, the brains. Um, he, we did, we're just about to do a song on Brexit. The last one we did was a, a social media version of La Donna e Mobile, so as in the woman and her mobile. And the one before that was a, a Theresa May reworking of Maria from West Side Story. Theresa. And um, well, what satire is basically, I'm beginning to realise when it's done really well, is it, it's like spirituality, it's like really good um, Eastern spirituality where you, you, you put paradox and you say paradox and somehow it works and you can understand how two things that seem so opposed can work together and it's okay and make humour of it like some of the great Buddhist sages and things. Mm. I think that's what it does. It, we have this song about the Greek financial crisis to summer nights to, to, from Greece with an Angela Merkel, Alexis Tsipras duet like replacing Danny and Sandy from um, from Greece the musical and sell me more sell me more is the catchphrase and um, people we have people who are on the left of the spectrum on the right of the spectrum all in the same room all laughing and it's that's an extraordinary feat to pull off that is that is gen I realised you know with what Adam's done there just you know to get everyone laughing together without that separation that can occur with the left and right and the division mm. it's i mean it's not going to solve the world but it it allows a little chink of movement and play so there's there is something spiritual about it and i think it's in the laughter and the kind of mocking set forms that have maybe become a bit rigid yeah. there's something divine about that isn't it yeah i think there's something about the personality of god in that in the not yeah. just in the kind of just refusing to be set in one thing and always stepping out and laughing at what it you know yeah to find the humor in paradox is really what we need i mean in everything we've discussed to be able to to, to be able to see that there are all these different ways of looking at the world and they can all exist coexist with each other i think it was it was part of uh Greek religion, you'd have the holy procession the, and the, the kind of solemn and the tragic, but then you'd have the satyrs carrying giant phalluses and taking yeah. the piss out of the people as they went past. Yeah, yeah. I suppose it's in yeah. carnival as well. Sat the Saturnalia, is that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, yes, yeah. Yeah. It, it's that. It's and that it stops it becoming over solemn and over rigid. And um, over-calcified. Yeah, gives it new life, yeah. Mm. What I'm giving and trying to give is not the answer. It's not, um, it's not, going, to, it's not going to ever replace the need for cathedrals and organised religion to actually keep the cathedrals going. or It's not going to replace the books that have been written painstakingly over thousands of years of, of wisdom passed down from generation to generation. It can't replace these... But what it can do is just add a little bit of new life to sort of seemingly neglected areas of all of that that could make everything, all the whole um, creation of the church or the religion or this 
this or that belief system, just have more energy because it's starting to become stuck mm. and, and stale and yeah. old and fusty and, and it needs, it, that is, I'm not actually, all I'm doing is promoting, I'm like a promoter, yeah. I'm not really. But it is, it's a, I do think it's a critical task for our time to, to help people who do not consider themselves Christian and do not necessarily believe A, B and C to nonetheless have a way to engage with some of the existing cultural architecture of Christianity yeah. as a means to belonging, transcendence, myth yeah. and so forth. Yeah, definitely. We need to go back to our tradition. You know, that we've had the influx of Hinduism and Buddhism and um, in the form of mindfulness and and even even more shamanic traditions now from the Amazon and we've all these different influences coming into our society which are great and they're really opening things up but done in the right way Christian can do a lot of that already mm. it's just not done in the right day mo right way most of the time and and this not is and, and I suppose one reason I'm I'm sure as well is that I I I'm very I like very much Buddhism but it's this is not something deep in my cultural psyche. No, it's not in your it, bones. It's not in the bones, yeah. And I think, you know, it's great to engage with those traditions with a sense of one's own history too, even though I'm, I don't usually call myself Christian. Yeah. I think if we just start thinking of ourselves as Christian by default and then allowed to explore beyond mm. that, it's good. Yeah. Everyone's Christian by d default, even... You know, atheists sometimes want to have weddings in churches. Yeah, I yeah, think we, of something, we, some big messy thing called Anglicanism, of which Richard Dawkins is a part. Yeah, he's a really important part, actually. Because mm. he crystallises the other side, the mm. other way of looking at things.